Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is the second mini-episode for the first series, The Fly Whisker. This is the very first proper episode of the new series of mini-episodes. Each mini-episode will look at a different object from ancient India, something that we still have today. From paintings on the walls of caves to hairbrushes of Mauryan women. For more details on these special episodes, check out the introduction to them as episode 1i. We start in a city that we've been following all podcasts long, Patliputra. Actually, to be more precise, Patna, the modern city that stands on the ruins of Patliputra. Actually, to be even more precise, Dida Ganj Karambasul. And Didaganj, in times gone past, was a little hamlet just to the east of Patna. Nowadays, it's entirely within the sprawl of the city. And there, in that hamlet, in 1917, a man was digging down by the banks of the Ganges. And he was Maulavi Azimul, and he lived in the hamlet. Rumours have it that he was digging because he was chasing a snake, and the snake had gone into the hole and he was trying to dig it out. But as far as I can make out, the real story is he was just digging to find a new millstone for his house. But in any case, he was digging. And he found a nice, solid, square block of limestone. Just the sort of thing you want for a millstone. Only, as he started to dig it out of the ground, he started to push back the dirt. He saw that there were feet attached to it. And beneath that, legs. And pretty soon, he realised... There was a whole life-size depiction of a woman, a statue attached to this base. And the woman had these careful, refined features, an extravagant body. And it was pretty nearly intact too. The left hand was broken off, but the other hand was still complete, and in it she held a fly whisk. And even as he drew the statue out of the ground, it had this sparkling, fine polish finish to it. Now, the people of the hamlet took the statue, they took it a couple of hundred yards upstream, and they found four bamboo poles, they made a covering, and they made a small shrine, and they started to venerate it. Similar to loads of small shrines all around India, of course. Inevitably, news about the discovery spread, and it passed into the ears of a student at Putna College. And it passed from him to his professor, the historian and the antiquarian of the college. And he passed it on to a British colonial officer who happened to be involved with running the Putna Museum. And he passed it on to the curator of the museum. Within pretty much no time, news had passed all the way up to the local bigwigs. So the curator of the museum, together with a bunch of policemen, came to the little hamlet. And they found the new shrine. And the curator told all the villagers that actually this wasn't really a statue of a goddess. This wasn't someone you're supposed to be worshipping. This is just most supposed to represent an attendant. And according to him, whose name was Spooner, according to Spooner, uh, that persuaded all of them to give up the statue into his care. That, I'm sure, and also the huge numbers of police he had brought with him. So he managed to persuade them to give over the statue, and from there he took it back to his museum in Patna. And for a while the statue had this most remarkable career as an international ambassador. It got sent all over the place, all the way around the world. London, Moscow, London again, Paris, New York. Pretty much 
any time there was a major exhibition of ancient Indian art, the statue was there at the centre. She came, she became, in effect, what people in foreign relations now like to call an agent of soft power, part of the gentle persuasion of cultural exchange. After one of these international trips, the statue came back to India with a chip in the cheek. Not as some people think in the nose, the nose was already damaged when it came out of the ground. It's probably an ancient damage, but a chip in the cheek was new. And then it was decided that she wasn't going to make so many international expeditions. And now the statue stands firmly in Partner Museum. Maybe it has a little bit less pomp than it used to have, but it's perhaps a bit more safe. It's still maybe the most famous object of ancient Indian art, and it's called the Dida Gunj Yakshi. That story, the story of the discovery of the Didagan Jaksha, it's a classic case of colonialism. You've got a bigwig who had white skin coming to a village with a superior-than-thou, wiser-than-thou attitude and leaving with the goods. There's a great book called The Lives of Indian Images by Richard Davis. It starts with this story and it goes on to explore this idea that these are power relations going on here. Start to also seriously question whether putting these images in museums is better than keeping them in their religious context. It's a great book. It's worth a read. Anyway, let's dig ourselves into the original religious context of the statue. Let's try and see it as ancient Indians saw it. Well, who were those ancient Indians? The statue was probably made towards the end of the Mauryan Empire. Ashoka the Great might not still have been alive, but if he wasn't, then his memory would still have been about. Some people actually think the statue was much later than that, because the statue looks an awful lot like some figures of women found in Sanchi that were built 100-150 years later. There's the same jewellery, and in particular there's the same hairstyle. I'm not at all convinced about that. This statue has the polish that I mentioned. You know how when you see a painting of skin, or of a statue with painted skin, it never seems even slightly real. And the reason is, apparently, that skin reflects light from within. That Some light penetrates the front layers of skin before it reflects back. Well, Mauryan statues are polished like that. You can only really get a sense of it when you see one yourself. The photos all get it terribly badly wrong. But somehow with Mauryan statues, the light seems to penetrate. It seems to bounce back from within. It seems to get under the outermost layer of the statue and shine like real skin would. Not that it was painted in the right colour, but it just has some liveliness. No other art that I know of, anywhere and at any time, has quite this feature. And none of the statues at Sanchi do. This is a Mauryan statue. And there's more that's Mauryan about this statue. It's difficult to put your finger on, but it's something about the expression of the woman, about her directness, or maybe it's the way she's posed. She seems rooted to the spot. And that's a little bit unusual. An awful lot of the statues of women we have from ancient India, and quite a few of the statues of men, are in the Tribunga pose. That's a pose uh, where it means three bends. And there are three bends in the pose. The knees are bent, the waist is bent, which kind of juts the hips out, and then the neck is bent, usually bringing it into line with the legs. And the whole effect is to make the body look like an S shape. And on some statues, the hips are thrust so far out that the thorax, the core of the body, is outside of the feet, and the whole thing looks pretty much ready to topple over. 
well, this statue of a woman is nothing like that. It's completely balanced. She leans ever so slightly forward as if eager to meet you. And she meets you head on, directly looking at you. At first, she seems to be exactly straight and symmetrical. But no natural person is rigid like that. And if you look very closely, neither is she. She holds her neck at just an ever so slight tilt. And her body is, is turned, twisted, not so as you'd notice it, but as you naturally would if you're holding a fly whisk over one shoulder, as she is. And all of these elegant twists and turns, they're just enough to make the pose natural, but not enough to dissolve the overwhelming feeling of balance, of solidity. So maybe it's the pose, or maybe it's the expression on her face of open confidence. Maybe it's something I just can't quite describe, something ineffable. But there's something about her that just looks decidedly Morian, and unlike some of the later images of women in Sanshi. So where were we? If you are an ancient Indian living in the capital city of the Mauryan Empire, then you were probably the person who first saw the statue. It might have been placed in the courtyard of well-to-do home, a statue representing the goddess of that house, but more likely it was standing at one side of a grand doorway, guarding it, with a pear statue on the other side of the door. The paired-up statue might even have been a man. Other statues depicting men and dressed in a very similar style to this statue have been found in Patliputra about that time. So this statue wouldn't itself have been an object of worship, most likely. Instead, it was more likely to be the prelude, the gatekeeper to a main attraction. And the statue almost certainly represents a yakshi. Now, yakshis had been worshipped in India since well before history began, maybe in, even since the time of the Harappan civilization. Uh, yakshis are female figures, the men are called yakshas, and they're semi-divine beings. I suppose if you really twisted my arm and made me think up a European equivalent, it would be something like a nymph or an angel, but those are still hopelessly off. One of the roles of the Yakshis was to keep the precious jewels and golds in the womb of the earth. So it's no surprise that Yakshis became associated with prosperity and fecundity. And Yakshis and their images were revered in much the way that the modern folk of Didagand revered this image. People brought them flowers, people left food offerings and the like in little shrines, usually under the canopy of a tree. Yakshis and Yakshas were not distinctive to Brahminical orthodoxy, though. They were part of that general Indian stock that was adopted wholeheartedly by Buddhists and Jains and followers of Brahminical orthodoxy alike. Some historians think that because she's got a fly whisk, she's likely to have been someone more lowly than a yaksha. And I just don't see the argument for this myself. Number one, yakshas were often attendants, at least in the sense that they marked the doorpost to some more central figure. So being an attendant wouldn't rule you out from being a yakshi or a yaksha anyway. And anyway, although attendants sometimes carried fly whisks, so did more important people. In fact, carrying a fly whisk was often marking you out as someone to respect. In the coming centuries, a fly whisk would even be one of the five emblems of ancient Indian kingship in North India, alongside white umbrella, shoes, 
turban. Um, it's a bit like a scepter in modern times. You know you're really getting too far into ancient history when a scepter is your example of a modern object. Anyway, enough of all of that. Let me talk about the statue itself. This is really one you have to go and see. But let's talk about it. As I said, her body is extravagant. Her breasts are implausibly round, and she's got wide, though probably not implausible, hips. There are folds in her flesh, creases, soft ones, two under her belly button, one at the side. Not fat, but this is a conception of beauty that's almost lost to us. But it is exceedingly beautiful. Her face is open. Her eyebrows are raised and her eyes look straight ahead, straight at you. Not exactly challenging, just watchful. But you get the idea that if you did anything wrong, she'd challenge you right there. Her mouth is at rest in a sort of natural smile that has, at least it feels to me, just a slight amount of mischief in it. Maybe a quiet reminder that Yakshis were not always benevolent and harmless. A bunch of hair is up her forehead between her eyes, and then the rest of her hair is tied back with a complex system of beads that run over the top of her head and also around the side of it, and they're gathered uh, in a wind of ornamented hair at the back of her head. Heavy, three-layered earrings pull at her lobes. On her neck, a trail of beads hangs down and bends around her chest, and it's clasped at the bottom there. Her arms and legs are packed with bangles, thick, beady ones for the legs, and one thick one of many thin ones covering almost her entire forearm. Her clothing is light. She carries all three bits of cloth, the uncut cloth that we discussed in an earlier episode. Around her chest she has nothing, but one cloth is tied around her hips. The folds of this cloth are marked out by two lines incising each fold, and they fall almost regularly, but again, not exactly regularly, just enough off to make it natural, sort of like a long pleated skirt, except that somehow the pleats are horizontal. The cloth is secured with a belt, and the belt's quite a grand thing, it's got five strings of beads, different shaped beads on each, and in the, the bead strings are neatly drawn together and secured with a clasp at her front, and from that hangs another cloth that's looped around and then scattered downwards to the floor. Its contrast, its contours are, are, are marked out almost luxuriously. The final cloth sweeps under her arm and then behind her and away to the broken portion of the statue on her left. Presumably, she was originally holding its end in her other arm, as a pose that we know so well from other sculptures. The fly whisk itself looks a little bit cartoonish almost. The strands are picked out, though they're, they're quite thick, about the, thick, the thickness of a little finger maybe, and they fall in very neat bundles. It's swung casually over her shoulder. Overall, the piece has that remarkable feature of Morionard. In a sense, it's unreal. It's more perfect in form than anything else you've seen, and yet it's, it's not too perfect. It's not otherworldly. It's not like, say an icon from Orthodox Christianity. Instead, it's as if the sculptor has tried to carve what would happen if one of the figures of heaven came down to earth and was a su substantial, 3D, real divine being. And in this case, the case of the Didagunj Yakshi, the sculptor's very almost succeeded.
Ayakshi appears as the central, unseen character of one of the greatest Sanskrit poems of all time, one of the greatest poems in any language. The poem is called The Cloud Messenger, and it's by Kalidasa, the great poet who works in the time of Series 3, The Gupta Empire. The story of the poem is simple, it's a shortish poem. A yaksha, that's a male yakshi, was working for the god of wealth. But he was deeply in love with his wife, the yakshi. So in love, in fact, that he thought about her day and night and he neglected his work. Well, the god of wealth wasn't having that. So he cursed the yaksha and he banished him to the woods for a whole year, alone, without his wife. And there the yaksha pined away the days for a few months. No pun intended. Not even bothering to eat, until the monsoons came. And then he spied a cloud, and he managed to persuade the cloud to go and take a message to his wife. He described the journey in meticulous detail, making it sound like a wonderful adventure in which the cloud would see many great things. And at the end of the description, he starts talking about his wife. It goes like this. She, the brunette, the delicate, with teeth like jasmine buds, with ripe bimba lips, the slender waisted, the timid row eyed, the deep navelled, she who walks slowly on account of the weight of her hips, slightly bent forward by her two breasts, who, as it were, were the first creations of Brahma among young women. Thou mayst know her, sparing in talk, my second life. From her resemblance to the lonely Chakravaki. I imagine that my young wife, from much pining in the course of these heavy days, will have become much changed, like a lotus, cold season nipped. Surely, therefore, the eyes of my beloved are swollen from violent weeping, and the colours of her lips are destroyed by the heat of her sighs. Her face, leaning on her hand, is not fully displayed on account of the pendulous state of her curls. It bears the likeness of the wretched state of the moon when his lustre is obscured by thy interposition, by the interposition of clouds. Oh dear one, having placed the vino on her dirtily clothed thigh, and wishing to sing a song consisting of well-arranged words concerning my family, and though the strings were wet with the tears, having somehow caused them to vibrate, again and again, forgetting the musical airs, even though the piece was composed by herself. During the day, being employed, her absence from me may not so much distress her, but at night I fear, thy friend, devoid of pastime, suffers heavy sorrows. Placed close to the window, observe this virtuous wife at midnight, resting on the ground, in order to render her happy by my message. With sighs which hurt her lip buds, she throws aside her the locks rough from clean washing, which certainly are falling down on her cheek. A close union with him I may perhaps find in sleep, she says. And thus reflecting, she longs for sleep, the approach of which is hindered by the breaking forth of her eye water. And the top knot, which she tied on the first day of our separation, and which at the termination of this curse, my sorrow having ceased, will be untied by me, she touches. And having become by fatigue of this touch, she removes it repeatedly with her hand, as from its hard rough state it falls painfully in her cheek lobes. O cloud, 
If at this time she has attained the sweetness of sleep, float there a while, withhold your thunder, wait for the measure of Iyama, so that she may obtain me in her dreams as her lover. And then the Yaksha tells the cloud to deliver his message. The poem ends like this. Having performed this request of my heart in a manner becoming a friend, the Yaksha tells the cloud, whether from friendship, from feeling of pity, on account of my misery, go, O cloud, richly stored with rain, to those regions which you desire, and may you never, like me, be separated from your wife. Having heard the message, the cloud indeed mentions it to the god of wealth. The god of wealth, his heart relents. He makes an end to the curse, laying aside his anger and rejoining the couple. Thus, he removed their sorrow and rejoiced their hearts with enjoyment after separation and made them taste happiness perpetually. That's it for this mini episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have enjoyed these episodes, please consider donating to my wife's charity. It's the Snehal City Memorial Fund. The details are on the website and there's a link in the description of this podcast. Have a great week. Take care.